pray together. Lord, that, uh, that same gospel that Derek has spoken of and that we've just read, Lord, we ask that you would use that message and infuse life in it and that your spirit would blow in this congregation this morning. Uh, it would blow in the lives of Christians who need to be challenged, and it would blow in the lives of non-Christians who need to repent and to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you would do that for us this morning, we would thank you and praise you for eternity. So help us. Be our help. Be my help as I seek to unpack this chapter, the rest of this chapter. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was uh, early on one particular Sunday morning. It's cold and damp outside and kind of a dreary day. I don't know, maybe it was snowing as well. The uh, mother of the house was trying to get everyone ready for church. So she uh, she looked at the clock and, oh my goodness, there's only 10 minutes left to get everyone together. And so she calls upstairs to her son, who had not yet even emerged from his bedroom. Michael, we've got to get ready for church. Silence. Michael, we've got to get ready for church. And finally, rather begrudgingly, Michael drags himself downstairs, but unfortunately, her task wasn't complete because another member of the family was still in his bedroom. Sounds like there might be a problem there. So she called again. She said, John David, we've uh, got to get ready for church. This time there was no response. She tried again. John David, we've got to get ready to church for church. Silence. Finally, floating down from above came this grumble from her son, from this person in the room, and he says, I'm not going. Mother heaved a sigh and dragged herself upstairs outside the bedroom door and said, it's time to go to church. He said, I'm not going. So she decided to try a different tactic. John David, you know lots of people at church, and lots of people at church know you. He firmly responded, I don't have any friends. And no one likes me, and I'm not going to church. She paused and said ever so resolutely, you've got to go to church because you're the pastor and you're preaching. <laughs> well, that's a rather humorous exchange about a particular conflict and interest. But unfortunately, as you know, not all conflicts are so funny and lighthearted. In fact, the exchange between Paul and the false teachers here in Galatians is not funny at all. It's intense. And if you've been here the last two weeks, you'll know that there's a fuss going on in the churches of Galatia. And the verses in front of us today should help us sort through really what all that fuss uh, is about. Paul's not exactly written a rude letter, but I think we could at least say it's pointed and very sharp. Uh, Paul is someone who's really concerned as he sees the Galatian Christians are departing really from the essence of the gospel, what they had been taught 
all along. So Paul makes some really serious charges, as we've already seen in this series. Uh, So, for example, look at verse 9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Whereas, as Pastor Ted was saying, to hell with him. Strong language by Paul. He feels, he says that they have received the gospel of grace only to kind of reshape it and recast it in a different form, an unrecognizable form. And this is because the false teachers, these Judaizers that we can call them, uh, were coming in and they were quietly reworking the gospel and repackaging it for them so they were being persuaded by it. And Paul says they're in danger of turning away from a Jesus-only gospel. Is that possible for us here to turn away from a Jesus-only gospel? You better believe it's possible. Look around at churches, uh, evangelical churches in the United States, and you'll see this happening in many places. So the conflict is serious here. Paul is uh, addressing this, and he is addressing these false teachers, and Paul is angry. Paul is angry. He is livid. And last week we ended with the Judaizers trying to trap Paul and uh, accusing him of being a people pleaser. So look at verse 10. That's why Paul responds. It's called a mirror reading. What it says is when you read scripture and it says something like Paul is making a strong argument, he's saying I'm not trying to please people, then the mirror reading is probably somebody's accusing him of being a people pleaser. Okay, so Paul is saying I'm not a people pleaser. Verse 10, I Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? So apparently the Judaizers felt that Paul was, Paul was willing to go to just about any length to please people. Uh, that he was quite happy, happy to jettison his Jewishness uh, when, he was, when he was hanging around with Gentiles. Or quite happy to lay aside his Gentile ways when he was speaking to Jews. What does Paul say? Do you remember I've become all things for all men, that by all means I might save some. To the Jew, I become a Jew. To the one who is not under the law, I become like one not under the law. So clearly these guys are thinking Paul's just trying to please people. And no doubt they were comparing themselves to the Apostle Paul. And they were arguing, these Judaizers, that they were the real theologians who took the Old Testament law seriously. See, Paul, he didn't really take it seriously. But these these guys, the Judaizers say, look, we're taking it seriously. I mean, after all, we're the ones who had the courage to insist on people being circumcised. Who wants to be circumcised? So, I mean, clearly, these guys are arguing, look, we're, we're, we're the guys that are standing up for bold truth. We're, we're proclaiming the truth. And they argued that they did so because they were God-pleasers. Whereas Paul, well, he was a man-pleaser. Paul was just really pleasing people. Well, quite clearly, these false teachers were experts in spin. They were experts in evoking biblical language and customs to steer believers away from the gospel. Liars selling snake oil to persuade Gentile believers to turn away from the gospel. Well, sadly, that's a problem that we're all too familiar with in our day and age. And how easy is it for undiscerning sheep to be swept away by the smiling, feel-good words of a preacher who says he's discovered truth in the Bible and serves it to them on Sunday mornings with a nice, warm personality, perhaps even a southern drawl. 
But isn't it interesting that when we come to church, we often feel like we're coming into a safety zone, a place of safety where we assume there will be very little, if any, spiritual dangers at all. But actually, according to the passage in front of you in your lap, the whole remarkable story of Paul's conversion, we see that there's a great spiritual trap in religion. Paul, you see, was not converted from a, from a background of gross immorality, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No. Paul was converted from a life of moralism. He was a student of the scriptures. He was a religious leader. He was well-respected and influential. And it's this morally upright leader that experiences this drastic conversion on the road to Damascus. So ironically, one of the things we see from this story is that there's just as much danger in religion as there is in irreligion and immorality. And to be honest, it's often more dangerous because it's so subtle. Religion is a great trap. I like the story of the woman who listened to a man preach on sin one time. And after the service, she came up to the pastor and said, uh, you know, pastor, I haven't sinned in 10 years. The pastor looked at her slowly and smiled and said, you must be awfully proud about that. And she replied, well, yes, I am actually. Well, see, she was trapped. And what we're dealing with here in Galatians is another unexpected trap, the trap of religion. And in these verses, we see how God rescues Paul from that trap. See, friends, we can be very focused on, like Paul, on trapping immorality and wrongdoing in others. And ironically, we can find that we completely got trapped ourselves by that same old religious snare. So what we have before us then is Paul's story. Really, it's his testimony, and he's using his testimony to urge the Galatians to have a Jesus-only gospel and not a Jesus-plus gospel. So look there at verses 13 and 14. His testimony is divided up quite nicely. 13 and 14, you see Paul's life before Christ. Uh, this is when Paul was outside of Christ. Then in verses 15 and 16, you see Paul's conversion where God enters the picture. It's beautiful. And then in verses 17 through 24, we have Paul's life after Christ or Paul's ministry, what he does. And uh, by looking at closely this story, I think Paul is making at least two points here. At least I want to pull out two things that really seem to emerge from the text. I want to say two things. Um, I think Paul wants to emphasize two things. First, from this story, we are to do two things. First, we are to reject the religion of I. And secondly, we are to receive the faith of God. So first, we are to reject the religion of I. Verses 13 and 14. Look at the word I. It's really quite prominent. Look at the text. 13. I persecuted the church. I was advancing in Judaism. I was extremely zealous and so on and so forth. 
This is Paul's life before Christ. And, and one of the things he's doing here is he's illustrating the difference between religion and the gospel. Uh, between what he teaches and what religion teaches. See, religion, verses 11 and 12, comes from man. It originates in human tradition. But Paul is arguing that the gospel does not come from man, does not originate in human tradition, but in fact comes from God and originates in Christian revelation. In other words, Paul's not giving us an essay here on comparative religion. Paul's not saying, hey, look, let me show you how similar the gospel is to moralistic Judaism. Both are monotheistic. No. Paul is, Paul is doing the exact opposite. He is showing the stark and real contrast between the gospel and religion. He is exposing the differences. This week I was reading a piece from the Gospel Coalition blog, uh, Tully and Chavidjan's uh, blog, and uh, he was, I stumbled across an article that he had posted on there by Tim Keller uh, on the differences between religion and the gospel. And uh, I thought this was helpful and wanted to share it with you this morning. Keller says this. Keller writes, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to get God to delight in him and to reflect his image. Religion says, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work, how moral I am, and so I can't help but look down on all those lazy and immoral people. The gospel says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. And I can't look down on unbelievers because it's only by grace that I am what I am. That's well said by Tim Keller. And Paul is trying to expose the same gap between religion and the gospel, or between, we can say, the religion of I and faith in God. Well, what is the religion of I exactly? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us a pretty good description of it in verses 13 and 14. He says... For you have heard of my former life. The NIV translates that, my former way of life in Judaism. You've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I. For the traditions of my fathers. I mean, you can almost hear Paul's chest puffing up as he surveys all his accomplishments. And so he defines the religion of I for us first as a way of life. Verse 13, a way of life. You have heard of my former way of life in Judaism. The religion of I for Paul is a code. It's a series of rules that are easily defined and numbered. It's a list of things that I can feel good about. It's a series of boxes that I can check off on my to-do list and feel good that I've done so. Particularly this way of life or former life that Paul speaks of here is probably referring to the halach of rabbinic Judaism. Halach is the Hebrew word for walk, the way of life. It was 
it was it was a, a list of rules that was used to interpret the Bible. So when Jesus says, for example, you remember when Jesus says all over the Gospels, um, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that part you have heard it said is referring to the halach. It's referring to to the, this rabbinic interpretation of the Bible or of the law. But Jesus says, you, you've heard that said, but I say to you, see, and, and Jesus is claiming the authority. So you see, these guys, what they're doing is they're actually bringing the law of God down to an achievable standard where they can actually meet the law of God. That's what's happening with, with moralistic Judaism. Let's take the law of God, which is impossible to meet, and bring it down to a list of boxes that we can check off so we'll interpret the law in a way that we can actually achieve and actually perform and actually do it and feel good that we've done it when the law all along was intended to point to Christ because only Christ can fulfill the law. So you see how perverted this is from the very beginning. Instead of the law pointing to Jesus, they reduce the law to a series of rules and norms that they can live by and actually accomplish so the religion of I is a way of life, verse 13. It's concerned with the external. It's concerned with good doing and not good being. Good doing and not good being. And, of course, this is a constant temptation uh, for us to interpret the Bible this way. Even as a Christian who loves Jesus, it's a temptation for you. I mean, just think about it. What's the stereotype of Christians in the media what are Christians always doing in the media? Well, we're known as people that are always pushing some moral agenda, some ethical standard on others. That may be a really good thing for us to do. It usually is. The problem is that's all we're known for. We're not known as a people largely who are proclaiming a message of joy to the nations. You ever wonder why? I mean, how... How much like rabbinic Judaism are we? You see, at that day and time, and, and really in this day and time, in, in, some, in some circles, the mantra was, particularly for these, these Judaizers, the mantra was the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, have you read the law? That you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman to lust for her, you've committed the same sin. Whoa. Because up to that point, I mean, if you're following rabbinic interpretation of the law, you would have excused yourselves. The command is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Pass. Passed it. No problem. And Jesus says, don't lust. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You've heard it said, don't kill anyone. And everybody's like, I didn't kill anybody. I've never killed anybody. Pass. I've never cheated on my wife. God loves me. And Jesus says, okay. I get that. I get that you're doing well with your little disciplined actions, but what's your heart asking you to do? Do you have lust in your heart or anger in your heart? Then you're guilty. 
Or how about this one? Not just love your neighbor, because I mean, I can love my neighbor, but love your enemies. <laughs> what? I mean, I was doing good. I, I can love my neighbor. I can go to, I can go get Chris's trash can, and I can bring it out to the street for Chris on garbage pickup. Slip a little track on there. <laughs> no, I don't do that. I can do that though. I can help him. I can. We can invite him in to our house. You know, I can serve him food. It's easy. And Chris, Chris is a great guy. He's fun to hang out with. I can. Uh, I can enjoy that. You know, serving my neighbor. But don't ask me to love so and so. I mean, they hate me. They speak against me. They speak evil against me. They don't like me. They have they have inflicted pain on my life. They have they have just they have messed me up. Don't ask me to love them. You're not surely Jesus. You're not asking me to love my enemy. Surely not. So you see, Jesus is attacking the whole system. I mean, he's saying, listen, it's not about good doing. It's about good being. It's about the heart. The heart, the heart, the heart. We're so all about the hands, the hands, the hands. And Jesus is like, heart. I want your hearts. That's what I want, your hearts. So Jesus is just flipping the whole system upside down. And here's Paul. He's caught up in the same deal. He's completely caught up in this. He's all about doing the law, the law, the law, the law. And Jesus says, listen, you can do the law all you want, but who are you? Who are you inside? Look, it's great that you're doing the law. It's great that you look good on the outside, but who are you as a man, as a woman? Who are you? Who's your, what's your heart like? And some people are really, really good at good living they're great at living moral lives. They, they've lowered the standard of God's law to an achievable standard of realistic boxes that they can check off. And they think that they've arrived. And you know what? Some will even dare to say that they've achieved perfection. <laughs> you ever known anybody like that? There are a whole sex of Christian individuals, Christian, big Christian, Protestant Christian people who will, con- will confess things like that. They'll say things like that. It reminds me of a story of the great Charles Spurgeon. One time he was preaching at a conference, and a man came up to him after the evening session and says, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, I, uh, I've achieved, uh, I've finally achieved perfection. <laughs> so the next morning over breakfast, Spurgeon made it a point of sitting next to him and uh, picking up the milk jug very calmly and slowly began pouring it over his head. To see how perfectly he responds to that. Well, friends, that's the religion of I. And it's a way of life first. Secondly, it's uh, the religion of I is opposed to God. Look at verse 13. It's opposed to God and his church. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Look at that. I persecuted who? The church. Of God, and I violently tried to destroy it. Well, this this is really no surprise. I mean, after all, uh, each of us here this morning has a protective instinct about us, don't we? 
All right? We, 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 we have a protective instinct. If someone says something that threatens my worldview, my religious system, my values, my preferences, my choices, I will stand against them. And I will let them know you can come this far, but no further. You are not allowed to touch this. This is out of bounds. These are my, this is my baby. You're not going to touch this. We have a protective thing about us. And, and we'll stand against them. And Paul, like a good zealous fanatic, and he was a fanatic. If you don't think Paul was a fanatic, it'll become clear in a second. He was a fanatic. He, he persecuted the church and even sought to destroy it. And, and maybe, maybe this morning you've not resorted to violence. I'm sure you haven't. I don't, I don't know anybody in here that's violent like that. And like some extremists are. But the truth be told, you hate the church. Maybe there's somebody in here that just hates the church. You hate the church. And you're quite happy to persecute it with your voice. Well, maybe not with your hand, but certainly with your voice. I mean, you see, what you see is that the religion of I, see, the religion of I, it tends to, it tends to persecute the church because the church threatens the religion of I. The church is a threat to you. Think about that. What was it that Jesus said? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Death to self. Now, that's no friend of the religion of I. I mean, death to self. That's not a friend. Uh, okay, you're okay with a church as long as it doesn't infringe on your lifestyle or behavior or system of values. But the second you start feeling any pressure to conform to the standards of Christ, to conform to the word of God, you oppose it. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, may I say lovingly and gently to you this morning that you are opposing your only hope. Christ intends to be your savior, not your enemy. And maybe the gap between you and God really isn't that big. Maybe the gap between you and God is just about the size of your pride. Maybe that's all that's standing between you and God, your pride. Won't you relinquish that this morning? Thirdly, the religion of I is puffed up, verse 14, puffed up. Notice the language. And I was advancing, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. This is the classic portrait of the person who's wrapped up in the religion of I. Uh, it's big-headed. It's pretentious. It's self-applauding. Uh, it's about self-gain. Who's the, who's the best theologian? I mean, how ridiculous is that question? Who's the best theos? Theos, the word for God. Logos, word. Who's the best spokesman for God? That's ridiculous. Who's the best? Who's the best theologian? Or, or who's the who's Greek is the best? Whose is the best and biggest church? I mean, really? How ridiculous! Whose prayer is the best? That's a big one, isn't it? You know how many mmms did I get in my prayer? And, of course, this is a difficult thing for us, isn't it? It's a difficult thing for us. And it's vanity. 
I mean, what happened to living for the audience of one? What happened for what happened to living for the? I suppose that's just a cute thing we say. I suppose, I suppose we never really meant that, did we? Living for an audience of one. I mean, we're too busy living for the recognition of other eyes all the time. Surely we can't just live for an audience of one. I mean, I have to show that I'm a somebody, that I've arrived, that I'm a person that others should look to for help. I mean, why should she be the one leading all those Bible studies? I'll take my turn, and I'll show them that I'm just as qualified as she is. I'll study, and I'll study, and I'll study, and I'll prove that I'm a shoulder or two above the other Greek students. I'll read books that nobody else is reading to show that my knowledge is broad and that I'm well-read. Friends, that's the religion of I. It's self-advancing. It's self-absorbed. It's soaked in a love for self. It's flagrant narcissism. It's a me monster. It's me, me, me. Friends, do, do we need man's approval that bad? That we're really, really willing to ruin our soul over it? I mean, why not, why not, should we not relinquish our need for man's praise? And instead channel our energies to praising God, the only one that's actually worth it? And making much of him? See, the gospel is our solution to the fear of man. Because in the gospel, we know God's approval. And if you have God's approval, you won't fear man's approval. The whole world can disapprove of you for that matter, as long as you are accepted by God. That's all that matters. And the gospel tells us that God's full and complete favor and approval are already ours in Christ. Friends, is that true for you this morning? If you're a non-Christian here this morning... Have you reconciled your relationship to God? Have you come to God and have you realized that God is holy and that you are sinful and that God has to punish your sin? But that through Christ, God sent his son and God took all the full weight of his wrath and fury and pressed it upon his son because of your sin. Your sin was placed on Jesus and God crushed his son for you so that if you will trust in Jesus... You can have a reconciled relationship to God and then have God's approval. Have you experienced that? If not, I pray that you will. Well, finally, the religion of I elevates tradition over the Bible. Verse 14, look at verse 14. Uh, Again, notice the language. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. The religion of I is zeal, not just zeal, but zeal for tradition. Yes, it's fine to be zealous if your zeal is in the right thing. Titus 2 is a great example of this. Titus 2 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, you know it, zealous for good works. So zeal is not the problem. The problem for Paul is that his zeal was wrapped up in tradition. That's the problem. A set of religious interpretations of the law, a religious sect, a certain nationalism, these codes of behavior. And this is typically what happens when tradition is elevated over the Bible. A movement gets stuck 
It gets more concerned with how we've always done it or what we did before. And it finds it increasingly hard to focus on the truly radical thought, what the Bible is actually telling us to do. How we did it. That doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is how are we supposed to do it? What if how we did it was wrong? What if how we did it was unhelpful? What if how we are doing it is wrong or unhelpful? Friends, we should be ready and willing to change at a moment's notice when the Bible is instructing us to do things differently. And just to be clear, the word of God is our authority, not our tradition and not our history. And when tradition becomes our guide and not the Bible, we're a pagan church. So you see, Paul is very zealous for tradition. In fact, we could say that he was an extremist. It's not just Paul. It's not just that Paul wanted others to be like him. I mean, this is way deeper than that. Paul was ready to persecute everybody that was not like him. Look at verse 13. He violently persecuted the church of God. Folks, it gets as simple as this. If Paul lived today, he would have been a terrorist. That's how, that's how radical this guy was. Paul would have been a terrorist. Paul would have had no problem bringing explosives on the airplane. He would have done it. Paul, Paul is a radical Muslim terrorist that helps you. That's his category. That's where he's at. He'd have been hanging out with those guys. Those guys are maybe not because they're Muslim, but he would have been hanging out with people that are just as fanatical and just as zealous and just as radical and just as violent. This guy, this guy was violent. He would have had no problem smuggling explosives. He was committed, and here's the thing. He was committed to tradition. He was committed to the persecution of people who did not follow those traditions, and he was committed to the very destruction of believers in Christ. That's Paul. And every religion has these types of people, doesn't it? So Islam, what do we have? Osama bin Laden. And in Mormonism, we have Warren Jeff. Warren Jeff, he was on the FBI's most top ten wanted list uh, for his involvement with polygamy. And we have, in Christianity, we have weirdos like David Koresh and Jim Joneses and the Westboro Baptist Church and, and, and Fred Phelps and their absolute hatred language of homosexuals. So no religion has the corner here on extremism. That's the problem that I'm exposing. The problem is in religion. And, and that exposes the problem. Friends, it's not a good thing to be a religious Christian. It's a good thing to be a gospel Christian. I don't know what religious Christian means. What does that mean? I know what gospel Christian means. Religion is not somehow free from violent extremism. No. Do you know what's free from violent extremism? The gospel. The gospel. I, I don't want to be a religious Christian. I want to be a gospel Christian. And this just goes to show that religion 
And all these religious extremists were missing the point. And so is Paul, his zeal for his own sect, his, his zeal for his own group, his zeal for human traditions, his zeal for these religious interpretations of the law. And so as we think about how this plays out in our life uh, this morning, it's this. It's zeal without knowledge. It's the kind of zeal that blows up buildings, yes, and causes fights, yes. But more subtly, it's the kind of zeal that divides churches around traditions and not scripture. It's the kind of zeal that forms a fringe movement around a set of strange teachings and ends up attracting a cult-like following. And this raises a good question. What is it about religion that causes all these wars and violence? Well, people have tried to answer this question with all kinds of solutions. Some, for example, will say... That the solution is, is relativistic tolerance. You just need to be tolerant of people. Inclusive. Tolerant people. In other words, you have to, what you need to do is you need to persuade everyone that religion is, all religions are basically the same. And they're all basically saying the same thing. And that at the end of the day, as Hindus love to say, all rivers really do lead to the same ocean. Because, see, if we can all kind of get on a level playing field, then, hey, we won't have wars and we won't be fighting and there won't be all this strife because I love you and you love me and we're one big happy family. And we'll all just get along and it'll be great. But, of course, I mean, even if you don't buy into the naivety of that, actually, if you actually think that philosophically that's a good approach, Let me challenge your thinking by saying this. Relativistic tolerance is actually deeply intolerant. Because the only people they will accept are other relativistic tolerant people. And anyone who does not think all religions are essentially the same is not accepted at the table. So friends, the solution is not some vague anything goes agenda. No, the solution is a real Zeal for things that are actually good and actually godly. That's the solution. What we need is a, is a word of good news. Not make yourself religious and see how you do. Not attend a church this weekend. Not do 47 things and there's a chance that you'll make it to heaven. No, but rather this. Have you heard the story? The old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a child, for I am weak and weary, helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly so that I may take it in that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Well, friends, that's the religion of I. And we've seen that it's a way of life, that it's opposed to God and his church, that it's puffed up, that it elevates tradition over the Bible. And so Paul, by means of his autobiography, is telling us that we need to reject the religion of I and receive the faith of God. And I love ending with this point because it just highlights, it just puts the the spotlight exactly where it needs to go. It's so God-focused. So receive the faith of God. If you look down at verse 15... You'll see a massive shift in focus. Paul takes the spotlight off himself. He puts it on God where it belongs. Verse 15. 
but when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Oh, there's so much here. There's so much here. But let me just highlight two things. First, salvation comes from God. Notice how Paul goes from a complete self-absorption to a God-absorption. From all about me to all about him. That, my friend, is a miracle. You know your own heart well enough to know that's a miracle. To get yourself, to get your mind off yourself. That is a miracle. That is divine grace. That does not happen by accident. Paul did not just wake up one morning and and decide he wanted to serve Christ. Now he was busy persecuting the church. He was busy producing all kinds of destruction and sowing all seeds of discord and division. He was he was dirty, he was filthy, he was he was a liar. Paul was a mess. And all of a sudden, verse 15 happens. But when God, God stepped in. Paul didn't save himself. God saved him. God steps in and God gets the glory because God did it. And that's why we're Calvinists. God did it. It's him. He gets the glory. Paul didn't save himself. I mean, is there a clearer example anywhere in scripture that salvation is by grace alone than this? Think about it. His moralism, his religious performance were nauseating and revolting to God. That's a category buster. Your moralism is revolting to God. All of our moralism, God hates it. It's nauseating. His persecution on this side, and it was a personal offense to Christ himself. Jesus says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus took it personally. So his moralism is revolting and nauseating. His his persecution and violence are a personal offense to Christ. So altogether, Paul's life was an absolute outrage before God. His sin was off the charts. And yet, and yet, God showed him mercy. Does that not surprise you? God showed him mercy. Friends, unless God first loved Paul, he was toast. Friends, it's God who initiates. It's God who sets apart. He's the first mover. It's all of grace. Something, ironically, the religion of I is afraid to admit. This is the work of God. And Paul illustrates it in a most vivid way. That the gospel is not religion. The gospel is not religion. The gospel is not religion. Think about it. On the one hand, Paul was incredibly moral. Yet he wasn't good enough to be right with God. And on the other hand, Paul was incredibly evil Yet he was not so bad that the grace of God could not reach him. That's amazing to me. 
God is so good. Paul's conversion shows us that the gospel saves people, not just from irreligion, but from religion, from the religion of I. And that's the point of the gospel, that grace overcomes our sinful resistance, bringing us to a point where we confess in the words of W.T. Sleeper, out of my bondage, sorrow and night. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. And friends, just when you think it can't get any better than this, look at, check this out. Look at verses 15 and 16. It's 16 particularly. But when God, when God, let these words land on you, but when, but when God, when God decided, but when God who had set me apart, when, before I was born. That's you too. That's you too. But if you're saved, that's you too. But there was a but when God time in your life. But when God, and listen to this, who set you apart, who set his eternal love, who set his affection on you before you were even born. Knowing full well how wicked you would be. Knowing full well what you would do. Knowing full well all your dirty little secrets. And how evil and wicked God But when God, who set his love upon you, let these words land. Before I was born and who called me, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. To me. First and foremost, this means that Paul came to an understanding of grace. And when I say he came to an understanding, what I mean is this. He experienced, he felt, he tasted, he encountered the love of God. God's personal, God's particular, God's affectionate love for him. God, God loved Paul? Love, love, love Paul? Oh, could it be? Could God love me too? Could he love me too? Yes. Yes. What did Paul say? God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that, while we were still sinners, while we were still filthy, Christ died for us. Now that's great stuff. But here's what captured my heart this week. It was the second half of the phrase. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased, was pleased, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Are you serious? He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why did God choose Paul? Was it because Paul was pleasing to God? No, that's the religion of I. Why did Paul, why did God choose Paul? It was because God was pleased to do so. God shed his love on Paul, not because Paul was worthy of it. No. God shed his love on Paul. Because God took delight in doing so. 
Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you. (laughs) In other words, if you're a believer this morning, God did not love you because he had to. Let this sink. Please let this sink. God did not love you because he had to. God did not set his love on you merely because you were desperate and needy. God did not love you because you were serviceable to him. He doesn't need you. No, listen. God loves us because God loves us. God loves us because he just does. And he doesn't have to tell you why. But he loves you like crazy. He loves us simply because he loves us. And and listen to me, listen to me. Some of you have a hard time. I can feel it sometimes. Some of you have a hard time. Just trying to wrap your mind around, is that really true? You know, you have a hard time seeing God like this. You're not certain of God's love for you. You're skeptical. And in light of your sin, which is great, and in light of the holiness of God, which is great, you wonder whether God really does love you. And you tend to think of God as tolerating you, often frustrated with you, and eager to punish you. And if that's you, oh, how I pray how I pray that God would break in and shatter your wrong view of God. And it is a wrong view. How I pray that God would reveal his love for you, people of God, right now. Right now. Do the words closeness and affection and generosity describe your perception of God? Closeness? Closeness and affection. If not, would you think of God right now, at this moment, as filled affection for you? Desiring to be close to you and eager not to punish you, but to be generous to you. Friends, this is the type of love that caused us in the first place to say goodbye to the religion of I and to receive the faith of God. And it's the only kind of love that we can truly be secure in because it's the only kind of love that cannot, that we cannot possibly that awesome it's the only kind of love that we can truly be secure in because it's the only kind of love that we cannot possibly lose because it's god's love and god's love is eternal and it's everlasting and it's forever and it's infinite and it's unconditional so when you sin tomorrow god's love is still just as radically for you as it is right now so if you feel god's love now and you don't feel it tomorrow you're just as loved tomorrow 
And when you sin and even do something egregious, and we do that, we sin, we make bad mistakes. But that's the whole point, is that we leave behind the religion of I, and we receive the faith of God. And part of that faith is believing that God loves you and is radically for you. And if you don't believe that, then all you have to do is remember the cross. If you don't think God is radically for you, then why did he crush his son? Who crushes their son? Crushed. He crushed him. Why? To reconcile you to himself. And that's love. And that love is soaking right now. Receive that love. God, receive it. God is communicating that to you. Receive it. And let that fuel you so that forever you will say goodbye to the religion of I and live in the faith of God. Let's pray. Father, we, oh God, we want to sense, we want to feel your love for us in this way. Oh God, I pray, I thank, we thank you for Paul's testimony. Thank you for the way you have instructed us through this. Fuel us, Lord, by that. Fuel us by this. We give you praise, God. Let Jesus be made much of right now. Lord, make much of yourself and your love right now in our hearts. For the rest of this week, let this be a massively transformative time for us, Lord. That we walk away from here feeling radically different. That our our view of you, that you have recast, reshaped, reformed our perspective. Let that fuel us, Lord, for your glory, so that we'll just, we'll sell out for you. We'll sell out. We'll sell out for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name.